The village of Bahola in Mayo is a quiet place. Like most other places in Ireland, it can be described as having two pubs, a post office and a Catholic church. It also, according to the most recent census, has a population of 203. But Bahola in County Mayo produced the remarkable O'Dwyer brothers, William and Paul, who emigrated to the United States at young ages but became leading figures in the New York legal and political arenas in the 1930s and 40s. William was central to the prosecutions which led to the eventual collapse of one of the most infamous mafia groups ever, Murder Incorporated, ended up becoming mayor of New York, the 100th man to hold that office, and his brother was a firebrand lawyer who defended many who others would not. It may be the ultimate immigrant done good story from a city that has produced so many of them, and if you're thinking that that sounds like an ideal slot for Donald Fallon with Hidden Histories, once again, you'd be right, because you know what time of the week it is, and you know that Donald Fallon is here to tell us all about it. Donald Afternoon, how are you? Good to be here, good Uh, to be here. Murder Incorporated or Murder Inc is a name that many listeners have probably heard but don't know a huge amount about. What an iconic name. And like so many iconic gangland names of both criminals and gangs, guess where it came from? You know, It was given to them uh, by the US media. Oh, and they were a gang. Music. We, we, we could learn a few lessons from Irish history about, do, about doing things like this too. Mm. But they were a criminal gang that were really rooted in New York's Italian-American uh, and the Jewish mafias. Uh, I suppose the gang was headed by the very feared Albert Anastasia known as the Mad Hatter. <laughs> and essentially what they did, Murder Inc., is they carried out contract killings. Firstly, on a, on a New York basis, and then they went national, you know, on this truly national scale uh, across the United States of America. And historians can't agree on just how many people were killed by Murder, Inc. I mean, anything between 300 and 1,000 contract killings uh, were, ca- were carried out by this organisation. Well, so it's a much feared title. Which I suppose then is a reminder that although you might think of Murder, Inc. as just being something that you see in the movies or something in some film noir thing or some sort of detective story, that it might all come across as being innocent, but there was nothing innocent about these No, there wasn't. And it, it sounds like one of those great movies like Goodfellas or The Departed or something, you know, when you read about this gang and how they operated. Yeah. I mean, they, they congregated at what was called the Midnight Rose Candy Store in Brooklyn, a 24-hour shop that was in truth little more than just a front for crime. And one great history of the shop says that the owner kept a wall of payphones along the back wall of the candy store. The members of Murder, Inc. would pass the time at the Midnight Rose sipping on malted milks until one of the phones rang giving the details of the hit. So it sounds very innocent, very all American, you know, but it was anything but. And the fact that they were contract killers as well might lead people to think that they were fairly efficient, just in, out, you know, very clean, quick and easy, get the job done. These were not no, clean deaths. they weren't, they weren't. And this group really came out of nowhere. And, and I think even crime, the Americans are obsessed with this, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, yeah. you build yourself. America mm. is whatever you want it to be. And even when it comes to crime, you know, there's a kind of narrative like that. This group murdering began on a very, very small scale uh, in the 1920s. You know, people that were involved in things like gambling, illegal alcohol, during prohibition, uh, prostitution rackets, and then it just becomes this massive criminal syndicate. And the money's good. I mean, anything between $1,000 and $5,000 for a killing. Which is, for the 1930s? In the 1930s, that's an enormous sum. Of, you're not smuggling that through, uh, through an airport, you know? No. And they begin with kind of handguns, uh, quick and easy, and then they move on to things like ice picks, ropes for strangulation, and informants in particular are just absolutely ruthlessly murdered. One account says that many were butchered, tortured, and decapitated. Great stuff for Sunday morning radio. Yeah, yeah. Butchered, tortured, and decapitated. Decapitated, some were held at gunpoint and thrown into coal burning ovens. Now, that to me 
is a particularly unpleasant end. Uh, so then in the middle of all of this uh, horror and this absolute uh, sort of craving depravity and disregard for human life, then enter the O'Dwyer brothers from Bahola. And it may have taken outsiders actually to do anything about something like this because the fear among native New Yorkers was so ingrained, you know, when it came towards gang culture uh, and going back decades. So it's kind of extraordinary that a gang like this meet their match in a family from, from Sleepy Mayo. But I think that the story of these brothers and their transformative effect on the legal landscape of New York is waiting for a movie or at least waiting for a documentary. And when William O'Dwyer, the elder brother, died in, in 1964, this was front page news in the New York Times. And think about what the New York Times is. You know, that is one of the most influential newspapers in the world. Mm. And the front page is given over to the death of a man from Mayo who they describe as an Irish immigrant, large of frame and ruddy of face, whose speech had a lilt rather than a brogue. O'Dwyer Actually text in if you know the difference actually between a lilt and a brogue because yeah, I have no idea how you discern between those two That's real American speaking about Irish isn't people it? stuff isn't yeah. it O'Dwyer had set sail for the US in 1910 he arrived at Ellis Island you know the, the, the symbol of Irish migration sure. to America Ellis Island uh, and he took a well-trod path for an Irish immigrant you know he was a labourer then he was an NYPD officer but then he studies law at Fordham University and that's a transformative uh, career move mm. then he's followed in 25 15 years later uh, by a younger sibling Paul who settles in Brooklyn and who likewise studies the law uh, and enters the legal fold. And you mentioned Ellis Island and the, the role and the, the perception that has among the Irish community. Of course, this is a time in the, the 1910s and 1920s when the Irish are leaving in gargantuan Yeah, numbers. and even into the twi- even into the, the birth of an independent Irish state where, you know, the colour of the post box has changed but there was still no work to do. People <laughs> are leaving, you know, and there's massive political uncertainty in Ireland. If you've been on the wrong side of the civil war, forget about a job. There's an economic crisis as well and there's this steady drip of migrants that doesn't really slow down. And New York is proof of it. I mean, there's so many Irish people in New York in the late 20s. It's it's joked about. The New York Underground is known as the IRT. And the joke among New Yorkers in the 1920s is that IRT stood for Irish Republican Transport because so many of the people <laughs> that worked in the New York Underground yeah. were lads who'd been on the losing side of the Civil War in Ireland and just had to leave. And it's a Kilgarvan man called Mike Quill who was you know, the union organiser of the New York Underground. Tammany Hall is having a kind of resurgence. The Irish are having a massive impact on New York politics mm. again. So the 20s and into the 30s, there's, there's still this wave of Irish people going to the States. And some of them, it should be said, are getting involved in criminal there's plenty of evidence of people who played a role in the Irish Revolutionary period and then themselves become enforcers mm. you know, in New York gang violence. Uh, so bring the two groups together then. We have Murder Inc. on one side, Contra Killers, uh, Five Grand a Pop, Ice Picks, all the works. And then you have the O'Dwyer brothers uh, coming in from Bahola. How do the two end up coming together? O'Dwyer is elected a Kings County District Attorney. He's district Attorney, November 1939, at this moment when you have the demise of Murder Inc. on, on, on the cards. And one of his first significant cases... He gets first-degree murder indictments against some key players in the gang. They've all got brilliant names, by the way. Martin Goldstein, who's this really unpleasant character. I mean, they execute him by electric chair uh, in Sing Sing Prison. Not a nice way to go, but no. then again, if you've been a member of Murder, Inc., perhaps you don't deserve a nice, a, a, a nice death. And O'Dwyer had this remarkable ability to get members of the gang to talk. And most of the people that were convicted, they kind of fell on the sword of their, of their own words, you know, or, or, or someone close to them. So he became this national celebrity. This was the man who got Murder, Inc., yeah. you know, give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves. And that's exactly what happened. So that's William. And then William becomes beloved or well-known for his work 
get at getting all these guys behind bars or possibly put to death. His brother then, Paul, is a slightly more controversial he, figure, fair he, to say? He is. I mean, Paul is there. He Paul had been in Ireland during the revolutionary period. William yeah. was already gone. So Paul is, is, a bit, is a bit more hardened. And when he arrives in the US, I mean, he goes on a speaking tour in 1939, lecturing in favour of American neutrality in World War II. That was a popular position among sections of Irish America. I mean, think about England's difficulty as Ireland's opportunity. Yeah, that yeah. awful old line was brought back into play. And he was doing that really until Pearl Harbor. I mean, once Pearl Harbor happened, you know, it was the yes, American public yeah. wanted to go to war and they wanted to see someone pay the price. But the younger O'Dwyer, his legal career is really, really interesting. I mean, he represents people in the McCarthy show trials, you know, people that are accused of having kind of communist sympathies. And he later defends quite a lot of Irish Republicans uh, who, you know, the British want to extradite okay. out of America. So this is a great case. I've never heard of this case, actually, till this week. Pete the Para McMullen, who's this ex-paratrooper who went rogue. You know, he'd been in the British Army, mm. joined the Provisional IRA, ends up in New York City in the, the aftermath of a bombing. Uh, and this was the first extradition case involving an Irish Republican for 75 years ah, uh, in America. Interesting. Massive headache for the British government and the American government. And O'Dwyer represents him. And Jack Holland, who's, who's written a lovely little biographical piece on him, says that he was also among the first in the US to reach out to loyalists before it became safe to do so. Loyalists as in, like, it's Ulster loyalists, the British UVF, loyalists. The UVF. Okay. In 1979, he brought groups of Ulster loyalists into his office who were searching for a way out of the political morass that was Northern Ireland. They included UDA leaders John McMichael, Tommy Little and Andy Terry. So okay. this guy's moving in different political circles uh, yeah. from his brother and for, for, for a, lot, a, lot, a lot longer. And I think official Irish America, you know, so to speak, always kept Paul O'Dwyer in particular at, at, at arm's length. Mm. But the work he did, you know, had a genuine, a genuine impact. And for an immigrant from Mayo, I mean, he won the US Democratic primary in New York. Wow. In AOC, okay. of yeah, course, yeah. at AOC did the same thing in New York in 1968 on an anti-Vietnam war ticket. I mean, this guy was yeah. very much a political radical. Do you reckon Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez realised at 50 years on that she was only repeating what someone from Bahola had already done <laughs> half a century before? Uh, meanwhile, uh, and talking about the family's involvement in politics, uh, in the course of all of this time, William becomes mayor but it doesn't all necessarily go to plan. Yeah, William is the name that's known among New Yorkers. Paul is a kind of obscure historical figure, but William, o a New Yorker of a certain vintage, will know William O'Dwyer. I mean, he smashed Murder, Inc. Then he becomes the mayor of New York, 1945. And that's a bad time to become mayor of anywhere. You know, post-World yeah. War II. Mm. So, uh, when you have a war, what you get is wartime inflation. It drives the cost of everything up through the roof. And then you have strikes in the aftermath of war. It's always been that way. But he gets elected mayor and he does this great one. He stands on the steps and he says, he sings, it's a great day for the Irish. And he gets down to the job at hand. You know, new offices for the city. Uh, he wants a permanent home for the United Nations. The United Nations is the great hope of the world yeah, after World yeah. War II. He says Manhattan should be the permanent home of the United Nations. And it is. He creates a traffic department. New York, <laughs> the one thing New York needed was a traffic department. <laughs> Yeah. And he modernises uh, the subway. It's a, just an extraordinary achievement. But he resigns as New York mayor then in 1950. He's a sacrificial lamb, really. And as his obituary said in the New York Times, his career in high office was full of paradox. It was brief and dazzling, starting when he was a gang-busting district attorney who smashed Murder, Inc. and ending nine months after the start of his second term as mayor with his resignation and the biggest police scandal in the city. So, so a police scandal from a guy who ended up becoming, you know, making his way into the public eye because of his work against crime. Absolutely. I mean, how, yeah. how does that work? The, the New York Police Department would keep the guard ombudsman up at night. I mean, if, <laughs> if you if you want to see a good 
Wikipedia page. No one has ever said that sentence before <laughs> yeah. in the history of the English language. Google the New York City Police Department Corruption and Misconduct Wikipedia page. If you print that thing out, I reckon it's the size of two copies of Ulysses. Okay, right. and The NYPD has just always been plagued by internal scandal uh, and corruption. Mm. But the 1950s were a particularly bad time for, for New York's finest. And there was this backdrop, just a string of revelations against the police force. Someone had to lose their job. And unfortunately for O'Dwyer, the mayor was the kind of sacrificial lamb. Mm. And a lot of people in New York felt this guy had been shafted. So he gets this great ticker tape parade. I mean, if, if they like you in America, you get this great ticker yeah. tape parade down. Even if you resign in disgrace. Even if you've resigned in disgrace, the people are on your side. Uh, and then he's appointed handy number US ambassador to Mexico but he'd fallen from grace you know undoubtedly mm. he'd, he'd fallen from grace um, by the way if, if you are thinking about doing that please don't print out the NYPD <laughs> corruption misconduct page there, there's a climate emergency because so there's not just, enough ink in your yeah, printer yeah keep the paper for other things uh, Paul by comparison to his brother uh, he never reaches the same political heights obviously he never reaches an office as high as, as that of mayor um, but he is every bit as important in many ways he fights some noble fights I mean especially opposing the the, the war in Vietnam and, you know, he describes that in the New York Times. He says that it was a time when we were taking a country engrossed in an immoral war and changing this nation and making it feel feel ashamed. And he was this very, very important figure at local political level, you know, New York City Council, which has an awful lot of power. But he failed in, in, in several attempts to win election uh, to the US House of Representatives. Okay. And I thought Nancy Pelosi's recent dig uh, at, at Alexandria Cortez was interesting. Mm. So, you know, you could stand anything on a Democratic ticket in New York and it would be elected. That wasn't always the case. You know, the Republicans were once very strong in New York mm. and O'Dwyer actually lost to a number of Republicans. But when he died in 1998, the, the New York, I mean, again, a man from Mayo on the front of the New York Times Paul O'Dwyer, New York's liberal battle for underdogs and liberal battler for underdogs and outsiders, dies at ninety. It uh, it really must be very rare for two brothers uh, from this part of the world to both have like New York Times obituaries as well. It's, it's, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. Um, and also as well that they, they never forget where they came from either. I think there's something about the Irish in America that they never became Americans. You know, we became something very different, which is Irish Americans. And the O'Dwyers never really forgot where they came from. You know, they mm. maintained the great connection with Ireland. Paul, in particular, he, he established the O'Dwyer Home, a kind of charitable institution, which you know provided housing for people with living with physical disabilities in the west of Ireland. Ireland and employment as well yeah. and then the O'Dwyer Forestry Foundation planting trees across Connacht okay. so the, the success that they enjoyed in the United States had a real material impact you know, yeah, on yeah. the lives of people back uh, in Mayo and I always think that's like a nice 20th century equivalent of an earlier on phenomenon you know in the 18th century and right up to the days of the famine the letters home yeah, you know, from yeah. people that had gone to New York and, and done well mm. sending gifts back back to Ireland so I think this family I mean an, an extraordinary story a great Mayo story and a great New York story for me, they, they embody the story of the Irish in, in, in New York City. It is, uh, it's really, really fascinating stuff. The O'Dwyer brothers from Bahola in County Mayo who ran the rule over Murder, Inc. and everyone else in New York. Donald, as ever, thanks very much. Uh, you have something to plug, by I way. do. I do have a shameless plug, yeah. I'm emceeing an evening tonight in Liberty Hall. It's the 12th of May, the anniversary of James Connolly's execution. Uh, Paddy Casey, McDarry Yates, brilliant young uh, folk musician, and historians Jim Slavin from Edinburgh and others. Ten euros on the door, mm. seven o'clock in Liberty Hall. Uh, so it's a, uh, kind of a, just a not just a musical thing but a kind of a musical and literary songs and, sort of and stories Connolly you know was a man who loved culture I think the two great loves in his life music and football Hibernian football club so I'm okay. sure we'll give them a mention as well he never adopted a League of Ireland club <laughs> he once never he came adopted over, no. a, league, a League of Ireland club <laughs> so no. you, you don't, at least you don't have those Dublin turf wars where you, you have like Rovers <laughs> and Pats both sort of claiming loyalty over him no. I, I enjoy James Connolly spent some time in New York I love reading his letters home to his family in Edinburgh where he's asking how hips have done and he says I had a bad day and just to make it worse I learned that hearts bet us too oh, nothing worse 
worse. Uh, seven o'clock on the, uh, in Liberty Hall. And tenure on the door. Uh, fascinating stuff. Donald, uh, as ever, thank you so much. Donald Fallon is the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books, volumes one and two of which are in bookshops now.